Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to an irreverent podcast. For more unholy content from our friends, head to irreverent.fm. Hey friends, welcome to the Speaking in Church podcast. I'm Josie. And I'm Spencer. And And See, I told you, I'm used to it. (laughs) This week, uh, we have our guest, uh, Jessica Gerhardt. She is a singer, songwriter, and artist, and a Catholic feminist, and that is what she came here to talk about. So everyone give a warm welcome to Jessica. Yay! Woo. I feel like there should be a clapping right there, so I'm just going <laughs> to do it myself. <laughs> um, Jessica, so we usually start the podcast with people telling us their testimony, their life story, mm-hmm. their other words that I keep forgetting to Google, um, you know, so anyways... Yeah. Tell us all about you. Sure thing. Um, So I was born and raised in Santa Monica, California. Um, My mom is Catholic and my dad uh, was raised Jewish and descended from a Jewish family, Um, although he wasn't particularly religious. So growing up, My mom was, you know, raising me with some Catholicism, but she had also had a pretty like unconventional childhood growing up and being like shoved down my throat. It was just kind of like, you know, we're taking you to Sunday school. We're taking you to church sometimes, um, learn a little bit about Catholicism, but you know, it wasn't like super rigid. Um, you know, some Sundays I would just go to the beach with my dad. Sometimes I'd go to church and, um, I, um, was in high school when my parents ended up splitting up and my dad moved away. And during that time it was really tumultuous and I was involved with youth group in high school. Um, you know, I hadn't wanted to do my confirmation initially because I used to think Sunday school was really boring. And <laughs> my mom was like, well, look, just check out a few of the youth nights and the confirmation classes. And if you hate it, then you don't have to do it. So I went and I actually made some friends and like met some of the like older teens who were helping out with the youth ministry program. And they were really welcoming and, and cool. Um, so I was like, okay, um, you know, let's, let's just give this a shot. So, and then I ended up being confirmed when I was in fresh, when I was a a freshman in high school and then got involved with the youth group. And so when my parents split up and like my family was kind of just imploding, um, I found a lot of support from my youth group community and, Uh, and then when I was applying to colleges, I ended up 
going to Reed College in Portland, Oregon. And I was attracted to Reed because it's like a school for sort of like quirky intellectuals who march to the beat <laughs> of their own drum. And I was like, that's me. I didn't know when I was applying there that also their unofficial slogan was communism, atheism, free love. Um, and Ooh. there's in some, I've, I've known some evangelical Christians who are like, oh, you went to Reed College, huh? Because uh, Donald Miller wrote a book called Blue Like Jazz, mm -hmm. all about his experience going to read. And so a lot of Christians from the Bible belt, especially are like, Oh wow. Read. We've heard of that. Um, or whatever. <laughs> um, so, or they're like, Oh, I've heard of that place or whatever. Um, so, uh, my time at Reed was interesting cause I joined the small, very small Christian group at Reed, um, which was known as Oh for Christ's sake. Um, and That's like, funny. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, it was run through InterVarsity, but oh, yeah. the couple, the married couple that led the Christian group during my time there, they were like very intellectual artist, hippie Christians. Um, they still definitely had some, you know, in, influence from evangelicalism and like non-denominational Christianity. Um, so it was, it was very eye opening for me as a Catholic. Cause I remember I like led the Bible study one night, which even just going to Bible study was pretty new to me growing up Catholic. We like heard scripture at mass on Sundays, but we didn't spend a whole lot of time sitting around and like reading through books of the Bible. Um, so that was interesting for me to be introduced to studying scripture with a group of, you know, very intellectual Christians because read is very academically rigorous. And so like, none of them were just like, well, it just says here, you know, it just says that's what Jesus did, or that's what they did in the old Testament. <laughs> so it's literal, you know, like they were very like, well, this is a type of this. And you know, this is what that meant in that cultural context. So it was cool to pick that apart with them. Um, and I remember I was leading Bible, the closing prayer for Bible study one night. And I was like, um, so let's lift up all these prayer intentions through our mother, Mary, as we say, hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with the, you guys don't know this one. Um, I do not actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like praying a hail Mary, I was like, oh, that's not something that all Christians do. Cause like growing up Catholic, that was just kind mm -hmm. of standard practice for us. So I started to understand that there were like Diff certain pretty big differences, um, between Catholic Christianity and other expressions of Christianity. Um, but I also really appreciated a lot of those differences, uh, particularly like having prayer that was impromptu and not just memorized. Um, and, you know, even intercessory prayer. Um, and then that kind of became like common ground points. Like a lot of my non-Catholic Christian friends were like, why do you worship saints? And it was like, well, we don't worship them. We pray to, we ask them to pray for us. Like in the same way I can be like, Hey, can you pray over me right now? I'm like all those dead people who are like up there with God, you know, maybe they can say some for me too. Um, cause they're like with God. Um, at least that's how I, that's my theorizing about it. My understanding of it. So, um, I think being in also being in, a, in an environment like Reed that was very, you know, atheist and, um, academic and, um, you know, and, and very progressive, the, a lot of my classmates just were very like, 
you know, thought that Christianity was just pretty dumb, pretty stupid, and that like only uneducated people were Christian. Um, so sometimes, you know, that would be something that would come up in some of my classes, particularly when we were studying um, the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament, like in the context of like academic, like an academic setting. And some students were just like, this is so dumb. How can anyone believe this? And I'm like, actually, I'm, I'm a Catholic and I do believe some of this. So uh, that feels offensive. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so I feel like being in a place like Reed, where you're in like a sea of nonconformity, I felt maybe in some ways like leaning into understanding my Christian identity more was like a way of not conforming in some ways. Um, so I had like a pretty mystical experience when I was going to mass once, uh, summer before my senior year, I was there by myself. Like it wasn't like a, one of those group things where everyone's like, praying in tongues and they're all slain in the spirit or whatever. Like that <laughs> stuff. I, I was a psych major. So I was like mm, group polarization and power of suggestion. We've got to take those things into account. But I was like totally just doing the same thing I would do week after week and had like a very profound sense of God's presence in a way I'd never felt it before. Um, and I, I think my way of interpreting that through also like the influence of like the evangelical Christianity, Christianity I was around was like kind of a little radicalizing, um, to perhaps put it lightly. And so uh, kind of coming out of that, I had a lot of like zeal and like fire for God and like wanting everyone to know the love of Christ. And I was a little over sanctimonious and, um, felt really different from all my friends for a while and like, didn't feel like I could go to parties and was just like a little, um, you know, on a high horse, frankly. Um, <laughs> and then came home after college, uh, when I graduated and the first job I got was doing youth ministry at the church where I had grown up. And I, for a little while, was just like, all these teenagers are so apathetic. None of them have the fire that I have. And none of them are ready to confirm their faith. And then I was like, well, hold up. You know, I was 14 and certainly wasn't the way I am now. And like, I sought confirmation where I was at, at the time I was at. And who am I to judge? Like, who's ready or like what? coming to God in your own way looks like. And so I think my walk within youth ministry and learning how to not just be like teens need to be at this place that I I'm at versus like, Oh, like how do I listen to where teens are at and like, just meet them where they're at. And what do they, what can God give them? And like, how can I introduce them to, you know, to God, the God of their understanding, um, by sharing my own experience and so a lot of my approach in youth ministry went from this sort of codependent sense of evangelization of like, we all have to think and agree and believe the same things and be the same to, I think Jesus was just like the most authentic person that ever was. And the whole idea of Christianity is knowing that you are God's beloved, like that you are inherently beloved, regardless of what you do. And walking in an awareness of your belovedness and living fully your most authentic self is like the path of Christ. So having that interpretation and that approach with my teens, um, was kind of how I walked in youth ministry for 
my, my last several years doing it. Um, it was like a, an interesting kind of deconstruction, reconstruction. And then, um, all along that time, I was also feeling a call to pursue music and I was writing songs and some of them had themes about faith or spirituality in them, but a lot of them were just like about my life. And I never felt like I wanted to be like a worship artist. Um, and I also didn't necessarily feel like I was, I, I was aware that like my music dealt with spiritual themes, kind of like Sufjan Stevens, Josh mm -hmm. Garrels, like those kind of crossover artists. So I was trying to figure out how best to pursue music. And then in 2019 felt called to leave a uh, full-time youth ministry and pursue music as a freelancer. I was doing that for about nine months before the pandemic hit. And Oof. Um, uh, and just like released an EP, gone on my first tour and was like starting to try to like gig more and then things closed down. But, um, yeah, so it's just been an interesting time for the past year and a half or so of navigating, uh, being a, being a person like in the church, who's not working in the church and not really actually able to be physically in churches a lot because they had been closed. And also, um, being an artist in a time when we're all feeling like can't perform and whatnot. So yeah, that's kind of, that's like a long story nutshell, tried to shorten it down, but <laughs> love it. Um, question. Yeah. As interviews generally go, <laughs> um, how do you, there's a lot going on with the Catholic church right now, as we all know, sure the is. whole communion stuff. But before yeah. we get to that, mm -hmm. what was your experience as a woman in the Catholic church? Cause we have our experience here mm -hmm. in evangelicalism, but have you like seen any, no, you know, just answer that, and that, yeah. answer that question. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, it's so funny. I just, I feel like I had a, an un, somewhat unorthodox upbringing in terms of that, like my godmother was a lesbian. So like growing up, I always was like, yeah. And my, my dad's dad is gay and has been with his now husband. They got married like six years ago and they've been together for over 40 years. So I grew up with like gay people in my life, queer people in my life who were like very central to my understanding of being beloved, um, and very close people to me. So that was part of just, you know, understanding gender and relationship in that sense. But also, um, yeah, I feel like the, the Catholic church I grew up in was in many ways more welcoming and, uh, progressive than other churches. Um, I, you know, definitely didn't dig, I like didn't dig the whole like women not being priests thing. Like I still am not like, super cool with that. Um, like there was a season where I was trying really hard to like understand and wrestle with that teaching and like appreciate like why it could potentially be true. And, um, I just feel like a lot of those theological arguments are, don't have a whole lot to stand on. But as far as like other aspects of being a woman in the church, um, I really didn't start to see a lot of the like misogyny and sexism until after college, because, I, I didn't really have a lot of examples of like, these are women's roles. These are men's roles. Um, even purity rhetoric, like was here and there mentioned, but like 
they did not really harp on it a whole lot when I was in, um, you know, growing up there were there, although there were some talks that I would go to, like every now and again, I'd go to like a youth conference and there'd be one chastity speaker who was off their rocker. And I was like, yes. okay, well, they cray. Like I just was yeah. like, this person's nuts, not so. Uh, and I was very easily able to like write that off, but it did. And it didn't feel like I was surrounded by all these people who were like drinking Kool-Aid about it. Um, I, I feel like in some ways my youth group was a little more secularized about that stuff. Um, but yeah, it was like after college where I had been, you know, where I had come to an awareness of being a feminist of, you know, also feeling more deeply affirmed in my Catholic Christian identity as a feminist and as uh, an affirming person, uh, I was starting to encounter more traditionalist Catholics in certain young adult settings and people who were really vehement about gender roles and, uh, all these things. And I think being presented with those things as an adult who was already pretty affirmed in my sense of my identity was like, Oh, well, I, I'm going to deal with this and be like, you're wrong. Or like, I disagree. And like, here's some reasons why that's problematic. Whereas I think I really dodged a bullet in a lot of senses as far as, you know, not, um, not feeling like that was being internalized too much when I was growing up in the church, feeling like I had to be a certain way to be a woman. Um, I think a lot of my experience of being a woman, um, you know, was just influenced by like, you know, any, any of the misogyny that's just kind of like in the secular, the world, the water, like women always have to shave and you should wear makeup. And like, <laughs> you know, the, all, a lot of girls in high school always like straighten their hair and I have very curly hair and like just things like that, where I was like, you know, I don't know if I fit in with everyone's image of femininity, but, um, yeah. And then, uh, Virgin Mary was someone I grappled with for a long time too, because, I think some people hold her up and put her on this pedestal for being this like demure, voiceless image mm. of perfection. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't a fan of that. And I remember some pretty pr profound prayer experiences um, where I projected some of my own frustrations with sexism and femininity, like feminism and, and feminine, like the feminine ideals onto Mary. And then like felt invited in my like imaginative contemplation to like have a conversation with Mary where we like deconstructed that together. And I was able to see her as like a real woman and a sister and like a, a person who was her fullest self. And that a lot of the way she's depicted isn't like really who she is. And also I'd been on like a Catholic retreat where this priest was talking about how in those days for a woman to like you know, if, if the, if the angel did appear to her and say like, Hey, Mary, um, got this, you know, God's inviting you to, you know, be the mother of the incarnate Christ. Like what say you, you know, a woman would be like, well, let me go ask my fiance. Let me go ask my father. Cause I don't make decisions for myself. And she's like, yeah, let's do this. Like she made a choice for herself. And so hearing it presented in that way, I was like, Oh, that's kind of cool. Like she's making her own choices. She's using her own agency to, to follow God based on her sense of God, her own, um, following her own conscience. And so that for me is, 
when I think about Mary, when I look to Mary and her intercession, I think of her as just like not taking other people's bullshit into consideration and just being her own woman. And she's a thoughtful contemplative woman in my imagination. Like, and so that image of femininity as being her own person and being somebody who holds all things, um, in her heart, but also takes action. Like I think even thinking about like the miracle at the wedding at Cana where, you know, they don't have enough wine and she's like, Jesus, they don't have wine. What are we going to do? Like, <laughs> and he's like, well, it's not my time, mom. And she's like, okay. And then she tells the service, just do whatever he tells you. And like, he's like, Oh, mother, like, you know, but then he goes and he makes a miracle happen. So I think that's my understanding of Mary that she's, you know, we forget she was, I, I don't know. I feel like the image of a Jewish woman in today's world, like that was Mary. And so all these, like, you know, if, if there's any image of Mary that like erases that mm-hmm. aspect of her identity and like the fierceness and the, you know, the tenacity of a lot of, you know, Jewish women, like that's, that's not, that's not an accurate depiction of Mary. So. Yeah. Cause I mean, she decided to be pregnant out of wedlock in a time where that would have gotten her murdered. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and Jesus himself was like, uh, we don't, we don't go stoning women when we mm-hmm. don't agree with their sexual decisions. Like that's not mm-hmm. okay. We're not about that. So and- you and better believe just, that was his mama telling him that. <laughs> well, and like, even just like what you highlighted, like she could, like she was a mother and she cared about her son and she loved him. But mm-hmm. like you said, she was also a Jewish woman, probably a little sassy and was like, listen, I'm your mom. You should do what I say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, uh, like we, we, Joseph kind of disappears from the narrative pretty early on. And I mean, it's possible he was somewhat older than Mary. We, we don't know all the details, but like, uh, likely he was uh, growing up with mostly just a single mother. And so like having her as like a primary parent figure, um, and like the respect and the relationship there, um, you know, yeah, I think she was a pretty big influence on who Jesus is. So like, I think we see a lot of that in in, in Christ, we see a lot of Mary in Jesus. So. Yeah, totally. Um, I was going back a little bit mm-hmm. to what mm-hmm. you were talking about. I was reading an article about, it was, I think it was titled the women who want to be priests. It was like in the LA yes. times or something like that. Mm-hmm. One of my friends is in that article. Oh, heck yeah. I thought it was wild. Well, first of all, mm-hmm. because I'm like, mm, no sex for the rest of your life. Really? This is what you're fighting for. But I mean, <laughs> that's not really what they're fighting for. <laughs> well, not, and also not all, um, not all women, Roman Catholic women priests are, are living a celibate life and celibacy within the Catholic church is not thought of as dogmatically as, um, some other things like, you know, certain teachings of the church are like, this is dogma, Mm -hmm. but the whole celibacy in the priesthood is more of a practice. Mm. And there are also all these loopholes, like any priest who is like Anglican or Episcopalian or like certain denominations are Eastern Orthodox. And then they convert to Catholicism under the Roman see, like they're a lot of them are married and they stay married. And so they're Roman Catholic priests who have spouses and kids. Um, also any church that's Eastern, right. 
Catholic. So like Byzantine Catholics, uh, Melkite Catholics, etc. Um, their, their teaching is if you get married before you become ordained a priest, you can be a married priest. But if you are, if you pursue priesthood as a single person, you can't marry once you're a priest, which is interesting. Mm. That's their own customs. But there are a lot of priests like within the church who are not excommunicated from the church, who are married priests, who have children. And there are some pushes and thoughts within various parts of the world of like, maybe we would have more priests if married men could be priests let's start there maybe or mm-hmm. you know eventually women too but uh, yeah. Really. yeah it's true yeah. though right but from a standpoint of celibacy like why can't women women can be celibate and be nuns but they can't be priests so like mm-hmm. that from that aspect right is like the whole like yes you can you can give your life to the lord but just mm-hmm. not like the whole way not like the whole way. <laughs> right. The the whole, I mean, really the theology, and I've really tried to spend some time looking at this and studying this and understanding this. A lot of the teachings around the all-male priesthood are defended by, well, Jesus was a man. And so the belief oh. that the belief that being a mystically in persona Christi, like you become almost like, I mean, this is a crass sort of or crude description, but like a hand puppet. And so Jesus is actually the one who's consecrating the bread and the wine and Mm -hmm. you are just the vehicle for which Mm -hmm. Christ can be there because Jesus was a man. The hand puppet needs to fit a man. So it needs to be a man kind of thinking, which seems counter to the whole Paul saying in Christ, there is no male nor female Greek nor Jew, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, and, or even like the the original, like we're all in the Imago Dei. We're all in the Imago Dei. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Um, And, you know, we hear in the early church, Mary Magdalene was the apostle to the apostles. Mm -hmm. So she, you know, was the first person that Christ in resurrected form appeared to and said, go tell the others, go preach the good news. Um, You know, we, there are examples in the, in the letters that we see of at least women deacons. And that's partly why Pope Francis currently has commissioned this whole team, uh, this like team of people to have a conversation about like, can women be deacons in the church? Like there's a, cause there were women deacons Mm -hmm. in the early church. Mm -hmm. And so there's a whole deliberation and I think the panel for that is actually like 50% women, 50% men. And like, that's also revelatory in the Catholic church that it's actually like gender balanced and not just a bunch of men making these decisions. And they have some of the like biggest like theologian scholars of like women deacon and women deacons and women in the church, like on these panels, which is exciting. But, um, yeah, like, Junia is another character in the scriptures that we love her. Yeah, is I mean, is a priest, and so some arguments are well, um, it was like uh, not quite like that, and actually, a Junia was a, it's a man, but the name is feminized or whatever. I'm like, okay, that sounds like a lot of dancing to try to just mm. like essentialize <laughs> this is for men, and men and women are different, um, and I think a lot hinges on that. And, um, you know, there's reasons for that, but that's a whole other big ball of wax. But yeah, mm-hmm. um, no, uh, my friend who is in that New Yorker article, um, Anne Tropiano, I've known her for over a decade. Um, 
and she, I met her at St. Ignatius in Portland, uh, Jesuit parish, which is where I was still going to mass while I was also like a part of the intervarsity Christian group at Reed. And she was very active with liturgy there. And she was, um, one of the young adult ministry coordinators. And there were times when they would do communion services, which is kind of like the parts of a mass, except there's not consecration of the bread and wine. So you can have previously consecrated, uh, bread. So the Eucharist, it's already like been consecrated, mm-hmm. distributed by a lay person. And so there were times when we would have communion services that Anne would lead where she would like invite others to do the readings. And then we'd have like, mm. she would provide like, a, a you know, an unpacking of a gospel reading and then we'd discuss, and then she would distribute communion to us. And like, it was really beautiful to see her in that context. But as long as I've known her, like she was sharing, like, I feel called to be a priest, but I don't know how to do that in the current climate of the church. So it's, I, I, I'm honestly becoming more familiar myself in just hearing about her choosing to be pursuing ordination and learning more about these women who have chosen to be ordained, who are technically, you know, they were ordained by either women bishops or who themselves were ordained by male bishops who were ordained within the context of, you know, the apostolic succession in the Catholic church. But as soon as they do anything that's not licit, um, they're excommunicated. So it's technically valid in that it descends from the apostolic succession, but they are not considered in communion with the Roman Catholic church. So my friend is like choosing, she knows this, like to be by, by choosing to be ordained as a woman priest, she's like accepting that she's like automatically excommunicated for doing so. And if any, any other priests like male priests were to go to her ordination, unless they like stayed hidden in their civilian clothes and like were low profile, if they were in their clerics at her Mm -hmm. ordination mass, they would also be automatically excommunicated and lose their faculties. Um, Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and they don't like, and she wants to be still part of like the Roman Catholic church, like not wanting to be like, cause like Anglicans, they, they ordain women and they have no issues with that, but it's really wanting to be part of the Roman Catholic church, really feeling a sense of Catholic identity. And I think there are, you know, there are obviously some distinctions between the denominations. I mean, a lot of people are like, eh, Episcopalian is just Catholic light, but like Mm -hmm. the origins of the church were like, you know, breaking off because some King like wanted to get divorced and like, you know, so it's like, that's (laughs) like not necessarily the most like, you know, for some Catholics, that's like not the best origin story. Um, but Um, no. And it's so fascinating to me, like in my past, in the past decade, since I've been like doing work within the church and like being a minister in the church and going to conferences and stuff, there's a great uh, annual conference called the religious education Congress. And that's like 50,000 people in like religious education and and Catholic formation and education throughout the country Mm -hmm. and the world come to like Anaheim, California, and, um, they, there are some presentations that are very traditional and some that are very progressive. Um, there's like 
a panel, I went to a panel that was like transgender and LGBTQ in the church. And, um, a man who's an openly gay Catholic talks about his experience being a gay Catholic man. And he had panelists that were transgender Catholic people. And these are people who are not a part of a traditional sense of the gender binary who you know, are, are still like, no, but I love praying the rosary, the, you know, the mm -hmm. divine mercy chaplet. I love the saints. My confirmation saint is so-and-so my Catholic identity is so much a part of who I am. And just because I'm also trans or, or gay or queer doesn't mean that this isn't my identity. And I think for my friend, Anne, you know, she, she doesn't want to not be Catholic. Catholicism mm -hmm. is a part of who she is. And so I think a lot of her, her minute, her ministry as a, as a woman priest, as a priest, cause I, I mean, I know woman priest is the, the technical term they use, but she's priest, like, you know, woman before it is just happenstance. But, um, when she's ordained, it'll look a lot like Catholic liturgy. Um, it'll, she wants to be a person who can, administer sacraments and, um, you know, it's a part of who she is. So, yeah. That's wild. This whole, I like this whole lesson. I like learning. <laughs> so this is all great. <laughs> like even like the Byzantine Catholics are like, what the heck? Yeah. This is always intricate. I mean, I knew, always cool. knew that Catholicism was <laughs> intricate, but yes. oh my well, gosh. The, Cause the, in the early, like in the 1200s, like pre Protestant Reformation. There was the schism between mm -hmm. like the Eastern churches and mm -hmm. and the and the Roman Church, and so like uh, the Pope was the patriarch of Rome, and then all the other patriarchs of the of you know Alexandria and all these different places. It was like this standoff. So the Eastern Church and the Western Church kind of had a split, but there are some Eastern Rite churches. They still have the practices of Eastern Christianity and orthodoxy that they're like back in communion with Rome. So they get to, they maintain their practices and their customs, but we're all still in one communion. So it's fascinating where there's like these expressions that are different. And then like, what are the things that can vary? What are, where is there room for variation and where is there like, no, this is like a, this is a fundamental no. And can those fundamental no's ever change is like, I think something that a lot of Catholics, myself included are kind of waiting for with bated breath. <laughs> mm. Did you, did you see any, so I'm not sure where you are now, but I know you said you lived in Santa Monica and then you went to Portland for school. So going to different congregations and just meeting other Catholics, did you mm -hmm. see a big influence of culture? So like mm -hmm. for background, like my dad was raised Roman Catholic in an, mm -hmm. a very, you know, Italian family. Ah, so yes, mm -hmm. Catholicism was their religion, but it was their culture as well. Yes. Yeah. And so now as an adult, most of my brother's siblings and even his mom, um, his, my grandfather passed away when I was a child, but after he passed, almost all of them converted to main, like quote unquote mainline, like mm -hmm. evangelical American Christianity kind of thing, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but still hold a lot of tradition and like these sort of like Roman Catholic roots. And so just wondering if you've seen that within like your friends, maybe of different cultures of just how that impacts just Catholicism and the way they participate in it. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, I think that the, 
I mean, like just the interplay of like ethnicity and religion, especially in places where like that were like, you know, colonized by Catholics so long ago, like so many things have become very enmeshed and intertwined. And like, um, so I think for me, like my Catholic identity doesn't feel as ethnically linked, um, because I'm kind of just like, a muddling of various European descendants, um, mm-hmm on my mom's side. Cause on my dad's side, Jewish. So, um, even part of my upbringing, like I was like Hanukkah and Christmas. And then I actually did that this past year. I saw, I like posted, I found my mom found this old menorah that I hadn't seen in years. And so I was lighting Hanukkah candles alongside my advent wreath and some very chatty Catholic white guy was like, did you know that that's actually a mortal sin? Because, uh, Jesus by instating the new law, like said the out, we don't need the old law anymore. I'm like, okay, at worst, I'm like being redundant, but like at, yeah, at worst, at wor- <laughs> like that's like, I don't think I'm separating myself infinitely from God's love by like celebrating a custom that Jesus himself very likely practice. So I'm just like, yeah. Yeah, it's not like but you were doing like a, like a devil worship or I wasn't, something. <laughs> it wasn't like a tarot card, like something yes. next to my advent wreath. And like, you know, some people are into that, like that's not for me, but like cool for them, whatever. Like I was celebrating something that's very much yeah. within the Judeo Christian arc. Um, and it's really, it has been, this is sort of an aside, but to see the way that anti-Semitism looks within Catholicism, mm-hmm. like we want to separate ourselves from Judaism. And even the way that that is internalized by some, uh, Jewish people who convert to Catholicism and like, uh, not all, like, I think a, a lot are still able to hold a sense of their being a Jewish person. Cause Jewish Judaism is not just a religion, but it is an ethnic identity mm-hmm. being able to, I'm a Jewish person who is also a Catholic person. Um, but yeah, um, that's a whole other world yeah. as well. I mean, but, if, but yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, if you wanted to elaborate, that was kind of my next question of like, how oh. do you, how do you live in that duality of being, um, ethnically Jewish, but religiously Catholic and, or h- sure. how do you celebrate both and live in that duality? Yeah. I mean, I, I think in recent years I've been kind of coming back to, um, you know, discovering more. My, my Jewish grandmother actually passed away in February and she lived out here in California. I'm in Pasadena area. Um, and so I was the only family member local, um, cause all my other family lives on the East coast, um, or in like Illinois area. Um, so I was, um, kind of responsible for like dealing with all of her belongings and, um, seeing like her menorah and like her old Torah and like photographs of her and like seeing these like pictures of my Jewish family and like being in closer contact with like some of my relatives and talking with them about my, my Jewish heritage. My cousin, who is my grandmother's niece, gave me uh, a photograph of my great, great grandfather, who was a Jewish cantor. And I was like, Oh, I'm a cantor in the Catholic tradition. And it was like, cool to see that, like, we're both cantors and feeling, I don't know. I think, I mean, in some ways I really feel like Jesus wasn't trying to be like, let's not be Jewish anymore. <laughs> like, I think he was saying this whole idea that some groups are chosen and other groups aren't is like, missing the big picture. Like we're all chosen where we were created by God out of God, out of love. And that when we walk in our chosenness, 
uh, that's, that's our identity is, is God's beloved is God's chosen. And so I really think it was about dissolving these things that divide us and trying to walk as one people. Um, isn't it funny how it always ends up being, you get kicked out of the thing because you're trying to change the thing. We're trying to expand an understanding Mm -hmm. of the thing or deconstruct the thing. And frankly, yeah, a lot of my deconstruction has been painful, has been hard. And I think it's, I think anyone, we, we as humans naturally feel comfortable with senses of certainty, with boxes, with categories. And I think it takes a lot of courage and a lot of trust. You have to feel safe to, de- to, to remove those boxes, to unpack those things and to do, do deconstruction. I think you have to feel safe also to let yourself grieve the things that the understandings that you have had. I know for myself, certain experiences that I've had, I had an understanding of. And then as I learned more, that threatened my understandings of my experience, I feared that my entire experience would be invalidated, which isn't what was happening. It was just that my understanding of my experience was changing. No one can take away my experience, but my, my understanding may change. And so like allowing myself to grieve that in different ways as I continue to learn has been a part of what it for me means to walk in faith, to, to lean into mystery, the mystery of God, because for, you know, a religion that's supposed to be all about God is bigger than we could ever imagine. Like we really like to be like, but let's try to box it in as much Mm -hmm. as we can. Um, so I think being for me, being a person of Jewish descent and a Catholic person, um, is all just kind of complimentary. Um, I'll, I also try to be careful about how I claim a sense of being of Jewish descent because by by a lot of my friends who are Jewish, by their definitions, I, I don't, I'm not quite Jewish. Like, I, 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 that's why I said, I'm like, I'm Jewish, but um, like, I'm- Oh, because Jewish. it's not descended from the mother's Yeah, and, and I wasn't raised primarily Jewish. Like the, within Judaism, they say, you know, you're the religion that the mother is. So I was raised Catholic and that's definitely the culture I know. I didn't go to temple a lot as a kid. I never had a bat mitzvah alongside a confirmation. Like it was, I was Catholic raised, but I do, have a lot of reverence for and like love for my, my Jewish heritage. That's still a part of me. And, um, so I like holding all of those things together, um, and holding them as, you know, side by side. Um, and, but yeah, like going back to your question about like how ethnicity and, or culture and like Catholicism kind of all intermingle. I mean, I can't really speak to that experience of like other people's heritage where like Catholicism intersects. I can see, like I've observed it and I've listened to my friends of other ethnicities share about their experiences of it. But even that's just about as varied as every other facet of Catholicism um, and diverse uh, as well. I do notice though that certain areas where like you see political trends that often tends to inform how people express or explore their Catholicism, even within the Los Angeles archdiocese, like there are certain sides of town that tend to be a little more conservative, uh, and some areas Mm -hmm. where the, the preaching and the 
you know, ministries available tend to be a little bit more welcoming. Um, so I think, you know, you can kind of just tell, like, even I have some friends who've posted banners that some Catholic churches have that say black lives matter. And I can generally assume if I'm going to go to a church that has that statement, that they're going to be a much more welcoming church than, you know, a church where it's like all these different novenas and like the 40 days of prayer, like, you know, (laughs) pray outside of abortion clinics. And like, that's their whole thing. That's that's the only thing they're focusing on. And then there's like not a whole lot of other ministries that acknowledge other injustices in the world. So I'm like, okay. Speaking of abortion (laughs) (laughs) and the Catholic church. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. What a, Mm -hmm. what a funky little thing America's doing, eh? Mm-hmm. Or maybe just the archdiocese. I actually don't know the larger scheme of it all, but yeah, what a wild and also bringing it back to feminism. Also, mm-hmm. this idea of like this is what you're gonna focus on right now. You're gonna mm-hmm. not give people communion, the great equalizer, because of one political belief. That guy murdered somebody. Can he take communion or whatever? You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on this whole little situation? So. I mean, I would say I identify as a pro-life Catholic feminist. And what I mean by that is I, I do believe that like, from like scientific understandings, like a human organism is formed at the moment of conception and that unique human genome is there. Um, I don't know the particular metaphysics of when the soul begins because, you know, a zygote can then become an embryo that then splits into two and then you got identical twins and it's like, okay, well, is that a soul that split or is, you know, whatever? Like I won't get into the weeds with all that, but I, I do, um, ideally like want to, you know, do things that uphold human dignity at all stages of life. That being said, I think that there is an excessive overemphasis on the dignity of the unborn that to, to the, to the complete like dismissal of the dignity of a lot of born life and particularly also holding all things true for the dignity of a woman who happens to be pregnant's life and, and her sense of safety. I think we live in a very toxically masculine patriarchal world that already makes uh, the, the doesn't provide women who would choose life a whole lot of options for Amen. her. To, that, so I feel like that's a huge part of the issue that there are a lot of systemic changes that need to happen that would decrease the demand for abortion. Um, I think we need to have like a whole revamp of how we educate about sexuality and like destigmatize and like open up conversations around sexuality because so much of purity culture in a lot of places is like very uh, fearful rhetoric that doesn't really talk openly and honestly and creates a lot of shame and a lot of stigma around it all. And so that like people don't even know fully how their sexuality functions, particularly young people. Mm. And, you know, and, and, and I think a lot of times sexual dysfunction comes out of that comes out of not being able to know how sexuality can be a healthy, loving expression with another person of intimacy and, and, and and joy and love. Like, I think it's often just like, we only teach it in this tiny little box and anything outside of that is really bad and don't do it. And you're going to go to hell. Um, so 
so that's going to lead to some unplanned pregnancies in like less than ideal contexts. Um, all that being said, I think that, yeah, I think it's complex. Like, you know, I, I think it's uh, for me, like the fact that there's literally a whole bishops conference talking about whether or not Biden can receive communion. I'm like, hello, the earth is dying. Like, you know, people are being killed all the time because of the color of their skin. And you're of all the things you could be forming a conference to talk about, it's whether or not Biden should get communion. I think that's between Biden and God. Like if he feels that he's, you know, needs to go to confession for something and like the person's choice to receive communion, like the rest of us aren't questioned whenever we go up to receive mm -hmm. communion. Um, if we've had abortions or if we've agreed with, or, you know, supported legislation that could decriminalize abortion. And I think that's another way that I look at it is, you know, it's funny, it's really semantics legalized versus decriminalized. But when I think about a lot of the, uh, legislation around it, um, I'm, I'm interested in focusing on the, the aspect of decriminalization because mm -hmm. I think when, and I feel like that about a lot of things that are being decriminalized. Um, but, um, yeah, I just, I think that for Biden to have a perspective that is, you know, wanting to not criminalize women who are seeking these choices when we live in a world where a lot of women feel like it's their only choice and we're not even addressing why that is, you know, mm -hmm. that's, I think that it's, um, really overly nitpicky and micromanaging personally. Yeah, I totally agree. Especially as somebody who lives with a chronic illness. And I think like if I were to get pregnant right this second in the worst stage of my pain, it would have to be a serious consideration from the standpoint of my health, yeah. whether or not it happens. It's like, okay, well, I'd have to consult multiple doctors and I'd have mm -hmm. to talk about pain levels and mm -hmm. what happens if I'm bedridden for nine months because I can't move or mm -hmm. like this, there's serious health implications that can happen. And a lot of, uh, Christian people of all denominations and whatever are like, well, the Lord will carry you through. And I was like, sure and maybe he won't or they won't and maybe like i'll survive and maybe i won't but either way like there are serious repercussions after the fact yeah or whatever uh, like uh there's so many and that's absolutely something that requires like every individual's mm -hmm. personal discernment right um, i think the church focuses so much on and not just Catholicism, but like Christianity as a mm -hmm. whole, I think a lot of time we focus on the behaviors that are good or bad mm -hmm. and we emphasize, don't do the bad ones mm -hmm. and only do the good ones. And we completely do that to the neglect of discussing and providing context and resources for a practical relationship with God so that we can mm -hmm. effectively communicate with and discern with God, what is ultimately our call, our vocation. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't see that happening in a lot of spaces. A lot of people want to emphasize, this is what the church teaches. This is what they don't teach. Like this is considered separating you from God before we teach 
here are some ways to pray. Here are some ways to learn how to listen to God's voice speaking mm-hmm. in the silence of your heart. This is these are some practical tools for learning how to be with God. Like we don't teach that. Mm-hmm. Um, so whenever we're like just telling kids to pray, a lot of kids when I was doing youth ministry, I'd be like, "What is? Did you? How do you pray? Or does what does prayer mean to you?" They were like, "I don't really fucking know." <laughs> you know, yeah. like, they had no idea. Um, and so. I spent more time, you know, talking about my own experiences of what prayer looks like so that you can make those decisions. You can discern Mm -hmm. things for yourself because if you're really listening to God and God loves you and knows all the best, like wants the best for you, then if you know how to listen to God's voice versus the voice of the world or Mm -hmm. this political voice or that political voice or the voice of the the false spirit, um, if you know how to listen to God's voice and discern that from the rest, then you're good. Like, Mm -hmm. and it's, it's always helpful to do that within community. And I think church, that's the idea. Like ideally church would be this community that doesn't tell you your experience, but that helps you to best listen to, to the God of your understanding without mm-hmm. shooting on you. That's my ideal church setting would be people support you in your personal discernment and empower you to trust your own experience. I agree. Uh, a great church, not black and white. It's all a little bit nuanced. Mm-hmm. Sounds perfect to me, especially when I um grew up in a household where I was told that Catholics were devil worshipers um, because <laughs> they, <laughs> that they was- like saints. <laughs> That was so, yeah, my first introduction to, I was applying for a campus ministry job at a college after I graduated from Reed and I, the job was like campus ministry, uh, campus minister to Christians that are not Catholic. And I was like, well, I was just in an intervarsity group for four years. I could walk with these fellow Christians. And then one of the interview questions was, but you're Catholic. I was like, mm-hmm. And they're like, what would you say if one of your students asked, said, but you're Catholic, so you're not a Christian? I was like, it was the first time I was even being presented with the fact that some people didn't think I was a Christian. I was like, um, you were incorrect, you little shit. That's what I would say. <laughs> well, I was so stumped by this interview question because it was something outside well, of it. I was like, that's like saying to a Jewish person that they're not Jewish or something. I was like, yep. I, I don't see how I'm not a Christian. Now I come, I understand why. I understand why so many. Because there's only one way, Jessica. There's only one way to heaven. <laughs> and and theirs is the most right way. It's always. Yeah. Everybody's way is the right way, right? Right. I like the uh, the image of we're all touching an elephant with our with blindfolds on. Mm-hmm. And so some of us are like, oh, an elephant feels like a tree trunk. Or I don't know. I feel like an elephant feels like a big flappy piece of leather. Mm-hmm. Or I don't know. An elephant feels like a big paintbrush. And they're all just touching different parts of the same thing yep and i like the mormon view of things where um everybody goes to heaven pretty much you have to (laughs) reject the lord to their face to go to hell and i like that i think i'm a little bit mormon (laughs) well i mean i think that's that's also i mean origin of alexandria in the early church he was like i think excluded from the Catholic canon of saints, because he said he believes every, you know, it says in scripture, every knee shall bow, but like he believes that all people will go to heaven. And the Catholic church was like, "Mm, that's a little too deterministic. 
I, and there's like Van, Van Balthazar and like C.S. Lewis and like some other theologians who sort of suggest like hell is like a door that's closed and locked from the inside. And my perspective, and this is what part of, one of the things I love about Catholicism is purgatory because a lot of people think purgatory is this like in-between place where God's not sure what to do with you. <laughs> the way I understand like hell, heaven, sin, purgatory, etc. Heaven is literally just like complete divine union with God. Hell is a state of fully consenting to like reject that, mm-hmm. not wanting to be within the embrace of God. And because God respects consent, God is never going to force God's eternal embrace on anyone. It's not going to be a headlock. It's going to be a consensual mutual embrace. And my sense of purgatory is that like, if there is any gunk or like wound or whatever on your heart that prevents you from being able to enter into like that big full consensual yes, that like, if there's even a desire or a longing for God that's been misguided or warped or whatever, that purgatory is literally like Velcro being like delinted, like all mm. the lint being pulled out. And so I think for people, you know, like the big dudes that are like not good, like Hitler's, you know, a great example, like this, the, the amount of lint in his spiritual Velcro would probably be like, you know, millions of souls. Mm-hmm. So that would be a very intricate and painful delinting process that a person, that a soul has to be put through to be purged of all the crap, of mm-hmm. all the pain, of all the wounds. Um, that's my understanding of it. And I'm hopeful and optimistic that every soul goes through that purgative state and reaches divine union with God. That's my approach to it. I, I, I like, like that. that. Respects consent because I don't want to be like you're going to heaven when my friend's like I don't believe in heaven. Even like, if you don't want to, yeah, yeah, God's gonna hug you until you like it. You're like I'm like I don't like that in that idea either. <laughs> I <laughs> love it. Well, let's end on that little feminist note of consent, everybody. Yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> we're all feminists here. God respects consent. And you should too, assholes. All right. Anyways, (laughs) Jessica, where can the people find you? Plug all of your things. Um, I'm on all the social meds at J Gerhart Music. So uh, that's J G E R H A R D T. The D is silent. It's German. I didn't come up with it. Um, And (laughs) also Patreon. I have a Patreon at just Patreon.com/slash. Jessica Gerhart. Um, and I also have an Etsy shop and an Instagram for my art because I make jewelry and rosaries and paintings and stuff at um, wow. Work of Human Hands is the name of the shop on Etsy. Um, and on Instagram, it's Work of Human Hands Art. Um, yeah. I'm excited. I love Etsy. I'm a fellow Etsy person. How oh, fun. Cool. Yeah. Ooh, cute. Anyways, everybody go buy things. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> and it'll be in the episode description if you uh, don't want to remember how to spell her last name. All right. Spencer, where can the people find us? They can find us on Instagram at Speaking in Church. They can find Josie at Josie Takes the World. And they can find me at Spence Rose. There you go. Follow us all. Like, comment, subscribe, whatever. I think that's for YouTube, but it all is the same. <laughs> whatever. Um, anyways, friends, as always, stay woke or get woke. Bye.
Muslims soon. Bye. This has been an Irreverent Media Podcast.